Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We pray that you are blessed by the sharing of God's truth for us this day. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Good evening. And internet issues notwithstanding, I'm thankful that you're here as we continue in our study through the book of Revelation. But before we get into it, let's bow our hearts together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time and we thank you for this uh, precious work that you've given to us, These, um, this message of hope in a world that seems so chaotic. What a peace and a joy that it is to know that through it all, our God is still working and that uh, all things through your wisdom will work for our good and ultimately for your glory. So as we enter into this time where we delve into your word, Lord, open not only our ears, but our minds and our hearts to your wisdom, to your message for us, and bless us so that we may in turn be a blessing to others. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. We are doing some preparatory work. I know it's a bit unusual, but as... The gospel, excuse me, is, well, yes, it's the gospel writer John, but it's also John the Revelator, as the old song goes, uh, is he's pinning this message to us. He is seeing things that God's allowing him to see through a very prophetic lens, meaning that in the course of eternity, he's writing down things that he's being exposed to that have commentary on past, present, and future simultaneously which I've taught uh, for you uh, several sessions about the prophetic echo, how things are genuine for the immediate audience of a prophet, but how they also continue to echo as time passes. Jesus is talking to us in the last session about the abomination of desolation. And we read about that in Matthew's gospel. We're going to touch a little bit on that today. And that's why we're actually in the book of Revelation, I mean, excuse me, in the book of Daniel in these preparatory sessions, both this Wednesday and next Wednesday. Because Dan, uh, John is taking it for granted that you know Daniel. So is Jesus. And for those of us that haven't done a serious study of the Old Testament, what we're about ready to dive into will seem overwhelmingly confusing. So it's my hope that in these next couple of sessions that we demystify some of that. Because as, as far as... Yes, there are things that seem confusing and even encode through the, through the book of Revelation, but there is nothing presented in Revelation that is not explained elsewhere in the Bible. And it is our job as serious students of the Word, a.k.a. disciples of Christ, to make sure that we know the whole book, the whole counsel of God, and not just what we would call the good parts and not the trap that our Sunday school coloring books have laid for us, but rather to know the hard sayings of the Bible, the things that are not culturally uh, in parallel with the day in which we live, those hard things that take some serious academic look uh, before we can fully comprehend them. But anyway, so we're, we're delving back into the book of Daniel because that's what Jesus references when he talks about the day of the Lord. So anyway, really quickly, just to get us into the book, uh, the prophet himself 
after whom the book is named. We know that he was a child that was taken from Judea, a member of a, of a, of a preeminent family there. But during the Babylonian exile, he was deported from Judea uh, to Babylon itself for the service of the royal family there. He was to be taught, educated, and trained up so that he would be a, an official in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. He is known as the beloved prophet. In fact, in Daniel chapter 9, we hear the angel of the Lord Gabriel say as such, which puts him in a strange parallel with two other biblical figures. The figure of, of um, the beloved son of Israel, who was uh, Joseph, who was also the interpreter of dreams, and John, who himself has many visions and was referred to by Jesus himself as the beloved. In fact, whenever you read, he, he sometimes, he himself does not inscribe his own name, but he says the, the, uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved. So there is this, this typing, this echoing from the book of Genesis to the book of Daniel to the book of John, his letters, and finally the book of Revelation that we're in. So pay, pay close attention to that because there's a lot of parallels in their stories and in their ministries. Uh, Daniel rose in prominence to become the prime minister of the Babylonian Empire and later under uh, Cyrus, the Medo-Persian Empire, from which he finally retires. And this is interesting for us New Testament Christians. He was appointed the head of their wise men, whom he not only led but trained, making him effectively the prime over the magi. So when we see these mysterious figures from the east coming to Jerusalem that get Herod all in a tizzy because of a new king that isn't him, what we fail to mention is that they were trained by a Jewish prophet. So when, he, when these magicians, quote unquote, or wise men, when these sages from a competing empire, not of Rome, come into Jerusalem, knowing more prophetic details than his priests do. It's because of this guy. Or at least that's my interpretation of the events. I'm talking about, there are two main sections of the book of Daniel, and they're not always in chronological order. The compiler of the book of Daniel, which may have been Daniel himself, or we know that he wrote it, but uh, his, his memoirs and his sayings or his visions may have been compiled by one of his students. That's still up to, for conjecture. But what we do know is that the first half of his book, leading to chapter 7, are biographical. They tell his story and the story of the events surrounding his life. Uh, I want you to pay attention to those asterisks that are in your notes because they tell you which, uh, which chapters in the book of Daniel were not written in Hebrew but in Aramaic, the common tongue of the time. The reason that's significant is the, the asterisk uh, chapters that are in Aramaic, they talk about God's interaction or his, his relationship with the Gentiles. For those of us that are part of the capital C church, that's us. While those that don't have the asterisk next to them, those that are written in Hebrew, deal mostly with God's interaction with Israel. Israel and the church are not the same thing. Also, the church has not 
replaced Israel in the heart of God. To preach that would A, call God a liar, and B, completely forget about the book of Romans, chapters 9, 10, 11, where Paul goes through a, a significant amount of his time talking about the, the destiny and the special blessing and relationship that God has over Israel. We are grafted into a new covenant that, was, that took place because of the fulfillment of the old through Christ. But that's, that's a whole other series of sermons. But I want us to understand that right now, is that the church as a figure, especially in Revelation, is a completely different figure than the kingdom of Israel. Both were created, had different birthdays, both have different promises ascribed to them, both have different destinies, but both fall under one God in the ministry of that one God. But let's continue on. I want to recap really quickly before we delve more into Daniel chapter 9 about the Olivet Discourse. Uh, and it, it was important enough teaching from Christ made to a select few of his disciples, meaning it was more of a private lesson for four of his, his, his inner circle students, as we would call them. But it was important enough to be echoed in three, three of the Gospels. And it centers themselves, it centers around a series of questions that the disciples are asking Jesus in private, talking about the day of the Lord. And I also want you to know this about the day of the Lord. The period of time that we're studying about right now is the most documented period of any other time in history in the Bible. There are more predictive uh, verses about the day of the Lord or the day of vengeance of our God, the day of the culmination of all things, whatever you want to call it, then there are even the coming of the Messiah. So this is important. But they ask Jesus himself, while they've got him to themselves, they ask him three questions. Number one, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the sign of the end of the world or the end of the ages? We know it. The end of nature under the curse. And Jesus starts out in a very weird way. He doesn't start out by giving them the sign. He starts out by telling them about what won't be the sign. And he, he includes this phrase, See that no one deceives you. Because there are others that will come in my name and that they will declare that all these things are going to be a sign of the end times when in the truth they are merely birth pangs. They are merely the rumblings of a blessing yet to be fulfilled. There will be political strife, war, and rumors of... Wars, there will be false prophets, false teachers, false messiahs that will come. There will be natural disasters. There will be spiritual intolerance and persecution. There will be a time coming when the very core of human nature will completely lose every veneer that it's ever had of godliness. Again, at one point in time, throughout most of our histories, the United States, it can be easily documented that fewer than 40% of, of our of our uh, populace ever attended church regularly. And yet, only in the last 50 or so years have we ever decided that, that the ethics proposed by Christ himself are no longer valuable to us as a society. So the very veneer of godliness, not true heartfelt godliness, but even the appearance of it is being washed away. And this was all foretold. But again, Jesus says, these are not the signs. 
The church is called to minister through all of that. But yet we know, because we've been told both uh, through the letters to the seven churches and through the voice of Christ himself, uh, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church will endure it and come out on the other side. But then he finally gives the peace of the puzzle that they've been waiting for. When you see the abomination of desolation talked about by the prophet Daniel. Now for any good able-bodied Jew that should automatically raise a red flag. Because in the intertestamental period an abomination of desolation was raised up in the temple. Its destruction and the rededication of the temple during the Maccabean period is the reason that, they, that the Jews now celebrate the festival of lights called Hanukkah. So to the people at Jesus' time, the abomination of desolation proposed by Daniel is something that's already in their history. But Jesus is telling them in the, in the Olivet Discourse basically that no, there will be an echo of that in the future. It will happen again. The same thing, but with one difference. A new ruler will come, not of me. And we'll set it up, and we'll talk about that a little bit more later on. Right now, in this session, we're going to talk about that more in the next session. In this session, we're going to talk about um, the, the, the 69 of the 70 weeks and the, the space in between that we call the church age. So Daniel 9 is, can be reckoned in three sections. There is Daniel's realization of what's going on in his own period of history. There is a visit that he gets by Gabriel, who's only one of three angels ever listed in the Bible, by name. And there's the 70 weeks itself described. So go ahead, take out your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. The prophet writes, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, I believe, a Mede by birth who was made king over the Chaldean kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the books according to the word of the Lord to the prophet Jeremiah that the number of years for the desolation of Jerusalem would be 70. So this all comes about because he was doing a Bible study, a personal time of devotion. So I turned my attention to the Lord God to seek Him by prayer and petitions with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. So he, He's done the math. He's read the books of the prophet, and He knows the time is almost up. That Jerusalem is now due to be rebuilt. That the exile in just a little bit is going to be over. And he does He celebrate and whoop and holler about it? Does he start making plans? Does he start drawing an image of a new temple? No. What does he do first? He prays. That's an example to all of us. This should be a time of great joy for him. But instead, he starts out by seeking God's will when this realization hits him. And he goes before God in all humility. I pray to the Lord God and confessed. O oh Lord, 
the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious, covenant, his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. We have sinned. We have done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, and turned away from your commands and ordinances. This is an intercessory prayer of confession. He's going before God knowing that this exile was his, God's punishment on them. And so the prophet himself ministering from the people to God, which is not really their usual thing. It's usually the other way around. They yell at the people on behalf of God. But he's going on the ground covered. He's the prime minister of the world in Babylon's, in Babylon's eyes. And he is draping himself in burlap, covering himself with ashes, and begging for God's mercy, not for himself, but for all of his people. We have sinned. We have done wrong. We have acted wickedly. We have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and your ordinances. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name, to our kings, our leaders, our fathers, and the people of the land. Lord, righteousness belongs to you. But this day public shame belongs to us, the men of Judea, the residents of Jerusalem and all of Israel, those who are near and those who are far in all the countries where you have banished them because of the disloyalty they have shown towards you. Lord, public shame belongs to us, our kings, our leaders, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Compassion and forgiveness belong to the Lord, though we have rebelled against him. It's the controller is stuck. And have not obeyed the Lord our God by following his instructions that he set before us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has broken your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. The promised curse written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has carried out his words that he spoke against us and against our rulers by bringing on us a disaster that is so great that nothing like it, like what has been done in Jerusalem, has ever been done under all of heaven. Just as it is written, the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquities and praying and paying attention to your truth. So the Lord kept the disaster in mind and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all that he has done, but we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord, our God, Adonai, Yahweh, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a strong hand and made your name renowned as it is to this day, we have sinned, we have acted wickedly. Lord, in keeping with you all of your righteous acts, may your anger and your wrath turn away from the city of Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become an object of ridicule to all those around us. Therefore, our God, hear our prayer and the petitions of your servant. Make your face shine upon your desolate sanctuary for the Lord's sake. Listen closely, my God, and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that bears your name. For we are not presenting our petition before you based on our righteous acts, but based on your abundant compassion. Lord, hear. Lord, forgive. You can hear in his words. 
how the verbs are stacking on each other. So he's getting almost in a fevered pitch during his prayer. He's almost convulsive with, with supplication before God. Lord, hear. Lord, forgive. Lord, listen and act. My God, for your own sake, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. Pause. So in the midst of this very fevered, fervent prayer, he writes, while I was speaking, praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my petition before the Lord my God concerning the holy mountain of my God. Uh, really quickly, Daniel realizes that his captivity is ending because of the words of the prophet Jeremiah. And he enters into a time of prayer and fasting. And this is what Jeremiah, this, this is the passage that he's just read, basically, that sparks this prayer. The whole land will become a desolate ruin. And these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. And he's probably underlined that in his own, well, he's probably noted that, I should say. When the 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and all that nation this is the Lord's declaration, the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, and I will make it a ruin forever. Can you find Babylon on a map right now as a city? No. Funny thing, though, is that even though Babylon is a, a bunch of ruined buildings in the desert, it was never really destroyed by human hands. We'll talk about that a little bit later. It was abandoned and left a desolate part of the desert. But it was never really destroyed actively the way that Jerusalem was in 70 AD when Rome came in and destroyed it. And that's, that's important to consider as we go deeper into Revelation. The prophet continued, This whole land will become a desolate ruin by these nations and will serve... I have already read that. I'm sorry. For this is what the Lord says... When 70 years for Babylon are completed, I will attend to you and will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. So Jeremiah has gone over this. He's, he's begged in prayer and fasting for God's forgiveness and the return of the people of Israel to the land of promise. And this is a prime example of intercessory prayer, something that we don't often do nearly enough. But he humbles himself, again, royal official, humbling himself in sackcloth and ashes, begging for mercy in confession before God. And then he gets a peck on the shoulder. While I was praying, my name, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the first vision, reached me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering, more literally the evening sacrifice. This is not an offering the way that we think of an offering as a church. He the temple in Jerusalem doesn't exist right now. If they do sacrifices, they're doing it in what is now becoming in Babylon, the synagogue. Something that they will later export back to Jerusalem. But for right now, the prophet as well as the priestly class in exile, they remember all of this. They hold firm to it in our hearts, even though there's no no temple sounding right now with trumpets and with bells and with all the finery of, of ancient Jerusalem, they still remember their God. 
He gave me this explanation. Daniel, I've come now to give you understanding. At the beginning of your petitions, an answer went out, and I have come to give it. For you are treasured by God. So consider the message and understand this vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city. So who are they made? Who is this decree made out to? The Jews. It's focusing on the people of God. About your people and your holy city to bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. In other words, the holy of holies. To my understanding of biblical history and redemptive history, the only thing in that list that as of this date has been accomplished is what's underlined on the screen right in front of you right now. The atoning sacrifice of Christ. Has sin come to an end? Has all of prophecy been realized and fully understood? Has everlasting righteousness come to the earth? Uh Uh-uh. So so the bulk of what we're talking about, the, the, the tipping point of the reality of the 40, the excuse me, the 70 weeks that, that we're about ready to finish reading about is the culmination of all things that's later described in much more detail by John. No one understand this, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild not the temple, but Jerusalem herself, the whole of the city, that's important, until an, anoint, uh, an anointed one, the Messiah, Mashiach Nagid, Messiah the King, until the anointed one, the ruler, will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. A lot of the rabbinic sources claim that that's because a seven-week period there um, was what was required. Those years were required to complete the construction uh, that's being detailed here. It will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat, but in difficult times. For a review of the difficult times, see the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. After those 62 weeks, the anointed one will be cut off. Christ's crucifixion and death is in Daniel. The anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. Okay, so, anyway. The people of the coming ruler will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now we can look back and we can see a coming ruler there, which is probably more literal as to what the prophet is writing here because a coming ruler, which in this case is uh, Titus, steamrolls in and destroys the city of Jerusalem after in AD 70, which is after the death of Christ. People of the coming ruler will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come with a flood. And until the end, there will be war. Desolations are decreed. He, someone in his likeness, or a prince who will come, will make a firm covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of that week, in the 70th week, so in three and a half years, for three and a half years, a covenant of peace will be made from someone in kind of the image of the Caesars, someone who is a ruler of the world in their own eyes, for lack of a better term, Nimrod II, will come and will declare peace, in political terms anyway, over the world. 
But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering. So he'll make a covenant, but he will break it with Israel halfway through. And the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolate. In other words, this guy's day is numbered. He just doesn't know it yet. So the angels visit. Gabriel appears with a message. He is the herald of God. And this happens about the ninth hour, what we would call the time of the evening oblation, which is give or take about 3 p.m. Because remember, in Jewish terms, the day does not begin at sunup. It begins at sundown. From evening to the morning, from chaos to order was the first day and so on. That's the way they still reconcile it to this day. Um, again, he declares Daniel in a lot of your um, versions of the Bible to be the beloved. We've talked about the parallels. In talking about the 70 weeks, uh, verse 24 gives us a period in, in scope, what it's supposed to accomplish. Uh, verse 25 gives us the 79, 69 of the 70 weeks. Verse 26 tells us about an interval period after the Messiah has been cut off. And then verse 27 tells us about the 70th week itself, about the day of the Lord. It's big coming. Now, weeks are not weeks. The Hebrew mindset considers a week a completed set of seven. Literally translated, their word for week, sabuya uh, or sabuim in terms of plural, a week is something that has been sevened grouped into a cluster of seven, seven being the word for completed, holy, or perfect. Well, at least with that prophetic understanding. So this is not, when, when we say that there is a week of something, it doesn't necessarily have to be a week of seven days. In fact, in the Bible, there are periods of, um, well, we'll get into that in a second. That's another slide. I'm getting ahead of myself. My apologies. But talking about verse 24, the period in scope, this is declared to be for the Jewish people, as we talked about when we were reading the verse. And it's something that has been mapped out by God from the beginning. It is something that has a royal decree from the creator of the universe. And its objectives are to end the rebellion, to stop sin, to wipe away iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up uh, vision and prophecy, and to anoint the Holy of Holies. Now, there is no temple in Jerusalem right now, so there can be no anointing of the Holy of Holies. Iniquity is very rife in the world today, so it cannot fully be wiped away, but uh, it can be wiped away. That's the only part of this whole thing that we can say has been accomplished right now. My iniquity, thanks to the sacrifice of Christ, has been wiped away. Yours has if you're in Christ. But sin has not stopped. The rebellion is far from ended. Ever, huh? Sorry? It is, well, we're getting to that. But a lot of things that, that is to be accomplished at the end of the 70 weeks, 70 weeks of years, has yet to be accomplished. Now, this is 70 non-contiguous weeks, meaning that week 1 through 69 are a period within themselves. Then there is a break after the Messiah has been cut off. And then there is the 70th week, which we've talked about, the time where a coming world ruler 
will have a covenant of peace that will be enacted for three and a half years and then megalomaniacally will want to be worshipped after that third and a half week is accomplished. Now, the reason I bring that up, I mentioned earlier that only three angels have ever been named in Holy Scripture. Michael, who more often than not shows up as the defender of God's people, as the warrior, the general. Gabriel, who is the herald, the announcer, the person that delivers messages to people. It was him that told Mary about the coming of Christ. And then there's the third guy, who is also the only angel ever to desire the worship of people for himself. Lucifer, Satan, Han Satan, the enemy. And because of his act of rebellion, he and a third of the host of heaven were kicked out. Anyway. So there are seven days, as referenced in this, the Sabbath day. There are, seven, there are clusters of weeks, as Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, what we call the Feast of Pentecost. There are weeks of months between Nisan and Tishri, the period of, of the, uh, excuse me, of um, the period from between Passover to Tabernacles, if memory serves. There is, of course, the sabbatical year, and through that, the year of Jubilee. And we'll actually find out that the, one of the reasons that the Babylonian exile was for 70, uh, 70 years was because during the kingdom period, Israel did not maintain that part of her covenant. In Second Chronicles, the writer pins down for us, the Chaldeans burned God's temple. They tore down Jerusalem's wall. They burned all of its palaces. They destroyed all of its valuable articles. This is, again, talking about the, uh, the deportation of the Jews. He deported those who escaped from the sword to Babylon, and they became servants to him and his sons until the rise of the Persian kingdom. This fulfilled the word the Lord gave through Jeremiah, the land, and the land enjoyed its Sabbath rest all the days of the desolation until 70 years will be fulfilled. Translation, because you have, God took basically a remembrance of every Sabbath year you did not observe and exiled you from the land for that exact period. So that's where the 70 weeks, excuse me, the 70 years of the Babylonian exile came from. First 69 weeks. I want just to show you a little something about how amazing God is. It, part of what I want you to get out of these studies is a sense of awe and reverence for the gift of the Bible and for the, 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 the wonderful, intricate design that God had to put in place for it to come to you the way that it did. The reason that uh, we're going to talk about right now is how, many, how long was the 70 weeks. It was declared from the declaration of the rebuilding of Jerusalem to the presentation of Messiah the King. There will be 69 weeks of years. That translates to 483 years. Now, I want you to remember something that during this particular period of time, 
a year was not calculated as 365 point blog days. In the ancient Sumerian calendar, the ancient Mayan calendar, the ancient Babylonian calendar, the ancient Egyptian calendar, and the pre-Republic Roman calendar, years were reckoned as 360 days. Remember that. These were the declarations to be rebuilt uh, for, for the temple in, in three of them to be rebuilt. Cyrus issued one in the book of Ezra. Darius reconfirmed it because the people of the surrounding uh, neighborhood started raising Cain about the, the, the Jews returning and building up the capital city again. Artaxerxes had to reissue the decree twice. But it's that second decree in the book of Nehemiah chapter 2 that we need to focus on because it doesn't just involve the temple, it involves also the infrastructure of the city as well. The decree was not to just rebuild the temple, but to rebuild the capital city, to build Jerusalem itself, to complete the wall, to complete the roads and the byways, to complete the defenses and the temple of God altogether. So we are looking at the decree that was issued at 445 B.C., March 14th, 445 B.C. to be exact. So, what we're looking for is a period of 483 years measured in or reckoned in 360-day years from the issuing of the declaration to build Jerusalem, to rebuild Jerusalem, until Jesus was presented on Palm Sunday. There's a reason all throughout the, the, the Gospels, Jesus doesn't want people to know he's the Messiah. He goes long, far out of his way to confess it to anybody. He doesn't want that publicly known until he is presented. And on the very same day that the lambs are brought to the temple to be examined by the priests before they are sacrificed at Passover, Jesus himself not only accepts the phrasing of the Messiahship, he also kind of engineers it. Zechariah 9.9 gives us the indicator. Uh, excuse me, Dan, could you flip that back, please, one space. Zechariah 9.9, Behold, your king comes to you, poor and lonely, riding on a donkey, the fall of a... Well, we'll go on with donkey, but yes. Uh, and then Psalm 118 Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Savior, save us. This is a messianic song. And whenever we, again, whenever we don't get something, whenever we of this Western culture uh, have, are in danger of running over a passage of Scripture, not knowing what it actually means in cultural terms, the Pharisees run to our rescue. Because when they start to lose their minds about something, you can tell there's something at play that we need to do our homework on. When they start singing, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. When they start seeing the rabbi on a donkey with people singing about it. In, in, in Luke's gospel, they, they say, uh, Master, silence your followers because you don't want them blaspheming. Because they see the scene. They remember the, 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 the prophecy of Zechariah. They remember the, the reasoning behind uh, Psalm 118, 
Incidentally, this is the day that the Lord hath made is not about just any day in particular. This is the day the Lord hath made are high days of our God, including the day of the Lord. But when they see all this come to pass, they know that with the laying down of the palm branches, with the shouts of Hosanna, that Christ comes as King. So it is here as, as He as sacrifice is being examined and found worthy as He enters into the city of Jerusalem, just as the lambs are being declared without spot or blemish at the temple. This prophecy is coming to pass. So we're looking for the amount of time between Artaxerxes' declaration and that faithful Palm Sunday. Thanks to one of the heads of Scotland Yard, a theologian amateur by the name of Sir Robert Anderson in the book The Coming Prince, which was published back in 1894. Uh, some groundwork was done to factor in all of these different things that we've talked about, including the 360-day uh, year. So when did Jesus begin his ministry? Now we know from the book of Luke that he started in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius. So give or take, uh, Tiberius was appointed in 14 AD after Augustus had died on August the 14th. Um, so the fourth Passover of Jesus' ministry would have been about April the 6th of 32 AD. Now if we take the number of weeks, condense it to the number of days, 69 weeks from the issuing of the, uh, the command to rebuild Jerusalem, 360 day years, seven groups of weeks, or uh, 69 weeks, seven years in a week, 360 days in a year, you get 1,000, uh, excuse me, 100 73,880 days. From March the 14th to 445 BC to AD 32 uh, would give you about 173,740 days. Uh, from the difference between the time that the proclamation was given until that Palm Sunday is 24 days, factoring in leap years at 116 days, what do you get? 173,880 days. What was Gabriel's margin for error? Zero. I have a friend who uh, reminded me that amillennialism does not necessarily mean that they don't expect a physical return, that there are different schools in that thought, and that one of those schools says that no, we do believe that there will be a coming of the Messiah in bodily form. We just uh, are, are curious about whether a thousand years means a thousand years or if it's just a long span of time. Margin for accuracy in God's terms is zero. This will be your sign. Daniel was given the exact time from the time that Jerusalem was ordered to be rebuilt by a pagan king, no less, to the day 
that Jesus would be hailed as Messiah the King, that he would be presented, that he himself would organize. He, he had the order given to bring the donkey. He had the order given to have the upper room prepared, which was already prepared. God has no margin for error. I'll leave you with this to consider for your reading for next week. This is what Jesus says during his triumphal entry. As the only as as his disciples are being triumphant, as they are singing and celebrating, as they are laying down not only their palm branches, but their coats, which means symbolically that we are granting you the authority that we have. When all that is done, they're overjoyed. The Messiah is come. But Jesus does what? He cries. He sees the splendor of Jerusalem and he weeps. In Luke 19, chapter 44, the last part of that verse, he weeps and he gives this as part of the explanation. You did not recognize the time of your visitation. The prophecy was fulfilled. The Messiah was brought to Jerusalem on the day listed in Gabriel, I mean, listed in Daniel by Gabriel. His crowd may have gotten it, it sounds like they did. But the majority of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, including the people whose job it was to facilitate the worship of the one true God, they did not accept what was right in front of their eyes. Jesus cries over the holy city. You did not recognize the time of your visitation. For next Wednesday, I'd like for you to take a look at Reread Daniel 9, focusing on the bottom half, specifically on the message given by Gabriel and the wording of the 70th week. That's going to be our focus. Also, I wanted to take, uh, you to take a look at the apocalyptic literature, the end times literature, that's listed in the bottom half of chapters 11 and the all of chapter 12. This is kind of a Cliff's Notes version of what we're going to see in the rest of Revelation. So I want to have that in your minds. Um, I want you also to start thinking about and start journaling on the question of what were your personal thoughts on the battle, the battle, and the Antichrist. What have you been taught before? What have you learned previously, either in sermons or in your Sunday school classes? Um, as you're doing your reading, I want you to make notes of what doesn't make sense. And I'm sorry, I'm going to ask that you take a leap of faith with me and trust the process. Because in first reading, a lot of it is not going to make sense. Our frame of reference as New Testament Christians is notoriously small when it comes to Old Testament writing. But I want you to go ahead in either the flyleaves of your Bible 
or on the pages themselves. I prefer colored pencil because if I try to use a highlighter, it turns a Bible page into compost. Um, but highlight with something that's thin, colored pencil uh, being my preference, or Bible lighters, they do sell those, or underline them in pencil. Mark what you are curious about. Because as we continue on in this study, my hope is the pieces, the, the jigsaw puzzle that you're going to read as we conclude the book of Revelation, all that will fall into place. But right now I want you to get things in your mind. I want you to understand what seems mysterious. I want you to, to have an idea of the questions that you need to ask as we continue this study. Underline, highlight what doesn't make sense at this point because it will make sense later on. Discuss all of that with your groups. Please keep in contact with them. Even if it's just a 30-minute call on the phone with your journal in hand, please keep your fellowship groups together. And make sure that you're journaling your thoughts and your questions because as things happen, again, right now we're, we're looking at the answers in the back of the book. Now our step is to understand the questions. Well, if this concludes the first part of the apocalypse according to Daniel. We'll try to draw that to a conclusion next Wednesday as we talk about the 79th week and about his apocalyptic literature and how it relates to Revelation. Any questions or anything, any live comments or anything before we dismiss? Did you learn something this evening? Were you blessed this evening? Are you glad you came this evening? And all that's people said. So Heavenly Father, as we conclude this session, we again thank you for the majesty and the glory that you imparted upon your word. And we also thank you for the majesty and the glory that is the word incarnate, that is our Savior. We thank you for his ministry to us in word. We thank you for his ministry to us on the cross for which we are not worthy. And yet out of your love for us, he gave everything so that we could now be called your children. And we thank you for his continued ministry to us, both through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the prayers that he continues to pour into your ear on our behalf. Have mercy upon us. Continue to grant us your strength, to grant us your hope in the brighter future that you are preparing for us even now. And again, help us to be blessed that we may be that blessing to those of our future. In Jesus' most holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from High Lawn Baptist Church. If you'd like to learn more about High Lawn Baptist Church or donate to our ongoing ministry, you can do so online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We believe that when you love God, you share His Word, and when you love others, you spread the gospel. We hope you enjoyed today's message and pray that you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.